Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Connolly, and thank you so much for joining us on the Library Love Fest podcast. Today, I'm joined by Meng Jin, whose debut novel, Little Gods, goes on sale January 14th. This is a very special novel that absolutely blew me away when I read it early on in its publication schedule. And it's my extreme honor to have Meng join me today. Thank you so much, Meng. Thank you so much for having me. Just to start off with, could you tell listeners a little bit about your debut novel? So my debut novel, Little Gods, is a novel about migration, history, and self-invention. It's centered around a Chinese woman physicist named Sulan, and the story is cubist in structure. It's told through the fragmented gazes of other people in Sulan's orbit, and these narratives, in the end, don't quite add up to a whole. So for me, the novel is also about the ways in which we are known to others and unknown to others and to ourselves. And these characters that you chose to tell this story through, they really do jump from the page. They're just fascinating and also well-developed, regardless of how much, you know, how much time they spend on the page. Could you talk about how you came about deciding on these characters and, and how to tell this story, both structurally and narrative itself? From the start, quite early, I knew that there would be a girl born on the night of June 4th, 1989, and I knew that her father would disappear on the night of her birth. Like Leah, I didn't know what had happened to her father for a long time. Um, I knew that she would have a scientist mother who would eventually immigrate to the U.S., and I knew that this mother would be a sort of haunting yet inaccessible figure in the girl's life. And I envisioned the story in which the girl believes that she's searching for her father, but the real story is that she's discovering her mother, the parent who's been right in front of her her entire life. Um, I think I'm drawn to stories in which characters tell themselves um, one story and the reader uh, senses that the true story is actually something else. And, you know, I started writing this book before I really knew anything about writing. So I had a lot of false starts and abandoned draft. But when the novel really started to take shape was when I figured out that the mother, um, Sulan, would be a sort of intentional absence in the narrative. I envisioned her as a black hole almost around which the other characters were orbiting and into which they were falling. And this, when I figured out this structure, everything sort of clicked into place. 
I think that's so brilliant the way you describe Sulan, who really is this. She's such an enigmatic character, and and you get different glimpses of her in wildly different scenarios, and she shows and reveals different parts of herself. This book has so many amazing, beautiful, lyrical, just piercing passages, Mung. I have to tell you that I, I oh, it's just thank you so it's much. so beautiful, and I literally have pages of quotes that I would spend hours going through, but I'm going to try to limit myself. And Sulan, as you mentioned, she's this physicist, and and she is kind of on the cusp of discovering something new, something groundbreaking in her field. She's a mother, but that's not necessarily her most natural disposition, you know, being mm-hmm. maternal, Definitely. we could say, <laughs> just an understatement. But I think it's fascinating we're talking about, you know, these big social historical movements, and then these very individual lives that, you know, in some ways are just harder to reckon with. And there's this quote from Zhu Wen, who she is the neighbor to Su Lan and her husband um, married and trying to build a life. And she recounts this thing that Su Lan tells her. She was studying the behavior of the tiniest particles in the world. She was trying to tease out a mathematical principle that would hold even when applied to the behavior of their opposites, entire planets, entire worlds. According to Sulan, in physics, it is far easier to understand the behavior of objects that are much larger than us than that of those that are much smaller. I'm just going to skip forward a little bit. I thought, too, of the stories in novels and history books I'd read, stories about nations and empires, stories that spanned centuries, how sometimes it was easier to imagine large pieces of land animating and moving against each other than to comprehend one day in my own insignificant life. So amazing and so brilliant. And I think it speaks to that. Could you talk about how did time capture your imagination when you're approaching this book? And how did you use that within these pages? I was interested in writing about history and certainly um, specifically about the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. And I, for a long time, I considered how to do it. Um, I did a lot of research In the beginning, I felt maybe that I would have something to say about it. But the more research I did, the more I sort of realized that all the things that could be said, you know, academics and historians had done a pretty good job of saying them already. And what really drew me in as a writer was not, you know, these grand movements that Zuwen talks about in that passage that you read, but the lives of individuals who intersect with history, perhaps without meaning to. And I wanted to write about history in a way that felt true to lived experience. I think that growing up, I heard so many stories from my grandparents and aunts and uncles, um, and sometimes from my parents about you know the things that they lived through. And it took me a really long time to map those on to the Chinese history that I was learning from textbooks. Um, my grandmother would tell me stories about, for instance, um, you know, Japanese soldiers um, who had taken over her village. And, hmm. and I didn't realize for a long time that she was talking about World War II. And I think that's because the tone and texture of the stories we get through history textbooks is so different from the tone and texture of life. And so eventually I realized that I wanted to write 
this story about history, this story that is situated in a grand historical moment. When I went online and was kind of looking up some of your writing, manga, what I came across mainly was short story. But I know what you told me was your you know, what you're drawn to mainly is the novel, the, you know, the novel length narrative. Could you talk about those, those two forms and, and kind of your history with them and also the characters? Because have, have the characters in this book appeared in any of your other writing? Because again, it just, they, they feel like they've been with you for a long time. And I, I know they probably have. Yeah, they definitely have. Um, They haven't appeared in any of my other writing. I actually, I knew from the start that the characters and ideas in this story would be a novel. Usually when I start a work, when I have an idea for a work of fiction, it comes with a sense of how I want it to feel. Um, And that includes the feeling of the sentences and how they move. And sometimes a sense of the structure and scope. Of course, when I start writing, all of this might change, but usually I know before I start something if it's going to be a short story or a novel or something in between. The novel took a really long time to write. As I mentioned, I I started writing this novel before I really even knew how to write, so, so I was also learning how to write as I wrote the novel. And it can be really frustrating to, or it can be really unfulfilling to work on a novel because you're never finished. A short story is a nice way of taking a break and getting some satisfaction of having an idea and executing it and completing it within a reasonable time frame. Was Little Gods the first novel that you had started? And and what were you, like, what were you studying before you decided to dive into writing full time? Yeah, Little Gods was the first novel that I ever tried to write. Before I, you know, I didn't come from a humanities background and certainly not from a literary background. Mm. My parents were both scientists and I, in college, I went into college as someone who was really good at math and science, who potentially wanted to study physics, in fact. And pretty soon into studying physics, I realized that I was much more interested in the concepts and the ideas than in solving mathematical problems. So um, in some ways, this book was a way for me to study physics without having to do the math. (laughs) Yeah. Before I um, started writing this novel, I'd never met a writer I'd barely taken any English classes, so I was definitely very new to it. So there was a lot of stumbling and grasping around in the dark. One thing I kind of noticed with this book, you know, the majority of it does take place in China, Shanghai, a little bit in Beijing. And your descriptions of the locations are, again, very just visceral and vibrant, and they really bring you there. And the descriptions, you know, it doesn't really take place in the U.S. all that much, but I don't really have like a, a memorable passage about anything happening in the United States. Do you feel like, again, this novel is you know, partially also about the immigrant experience and, you know, people coming to a new place, hoping for, you know, these fresh starts, but the past never really leaves in a way. Could you talk about maybe the immigrant experience and how you communicated that in Little Gods? Yeah, I think that you put it really well when you said that it's an immigrant story, but much of it takes place in China and not in the U.S. That was definitely 
intentional on my part. I, I thought about this as an immigrant story in negative, as in a photographic negative. The traditional immigrant narrative in my mind is the immigrant arrives on the shores of the new land, almost like a blank slate, and they become a new person through overcoming obstacles of assimilation. And I wasn't interested in telling that story, not because it's not an important story, but because I think parts of that story assume that the person doesn't fully exist until the moment of arrival. Mm. Yes. And I was really interested in telling a story that illuminated the fullness of the first life and the first self that lived and acted and desired before the decision to leave. You know, speaking of, you know, this narrative and, and you know, taking place on the ground in mainland China, you have something that I don't think maybe some Western readers are very familiar with, but long tongs. So that's where Sulan buys this small apartment. She's neighbors to Zhu Wen. And these are really, I think it's a fascinating concept for me, for me. Could you talk a little bit about Long Tong's, their place within the novel and also kind of like their greater historic relevance? Yeah, sure. Thank you for asking this question. The Long Tong's and the disappearing Long Tong's in the novel are actually one of the most intimate parts of the book for me. A Long Tong is an alleyway. It's the name for, a, you know, the old sort of neighborhoods of of Shanghai. And they have a really interesting history. Longtongs are really important to me because I was born in Shanghai and I actually spent some of my early childhood in a Longtong apartment, much like the one that I describe in the book. And this first childhood home was demolished in 2010 as part of Shanghai's beautification campaign in preparation for the World Expo that year. This is something that's been happening all over China as China develops economically. Old neighborhoods that you know, are admittedly a little dilapidated and perhaps to some eyes ugly are torn down for these new um, high rises, often for malls. Some years ago when I visited Shanghai for a writing residency, I tried to find the location of my childhood home and um, I found a huge construction site. And when I asked the people who were working there what it was going to be, they said it was going to be a luxury mall. And of course, you know, a few blocks away was another luxury mall. <laughs> so this is the way in which cities of China and especially Shanghai have been changing so I left China in 1994, basically right at the cusp of its huge economic boom. The scale and pace of change that has happened in China since I left has been almost hallucinatory. And whenever I go back to visit family there, I have this experience where the past, the past that exists in my memory is literally disappearing. And it's very disorienting and painful to be able to find no evidence of something that exists so vividly in your memory. I think this is something that many immigrants feel. Um, and so I wanted to write about it in my novel. And The Disappearing Long Tongues was a way for me to sort of tangibly manifest this heartache that I think a lot of immigrants feel. Hmm. It's very interesting how, you know, this development, this, you know, kind of capitalistic 
development in a way, I don't, it doesn't mirror, but when we're talking about like the cultural revolution and how this novel starts off, you know, with the Tiananmen Square massacre, could you talk about the cultural revolution and, and how that also plays into this, this whole narrative of, you know, destruction, newness, past, future, and how this all plays into one another? Yeah, sure. I think that, I mean, retrospectively, you know, this is a problem that Sulan has too, right? She mm-hmm. She's so intent on making herself into a new person, into the person she wants to be. And she believes that she can do that by erasing the past. That's what happened in the Cultural Revolution. Mao thought that China could enter, you know, its utopian society by erasing thousands of years of history, literally destroying it. And I think the past won't be erased so easily. And sometimes when you try it, it it just haunts you more. Yeah, I love this. There's this passage about Sulan and it's, this is when she just arrives at the apartment and she says she was there to paint the room white, not just the walls, but the ceiling and the floor. She kept painting until she stood in a white box. If you squinted your eyes, the edges disappeared and the space looked like an empty plane expanding in every direction. And I think that, again, just yet another very effective way of communicating that. One other thing, I know we don't have a ton of time, but one thing I did want to touch on is the mother-mother relationship that you talk about in this novel and also the father-son relationship. So again, for listeners mm-hmm. at home, Sulan, this brilliant physicist, gives birth to a daughter, Leah, who never knows her father. She returns to China to try to discover her origins. But you also have Sulan's origin story and you have, so you have mm-hmm. Yong Zong, who is actually his birth father. And you meet him as a young kid and you readers are introduced to the education system at this point in time. Could you talk about writing this father-son relationship? Because Yong Zong has this very complicated relationship with his father. And then, of course, Sulan uh, and Leah have their own very complicated relationships. What was that like? Was it very different writing uh, writing those two different interactions? Yeah, Yong Zong's section was actually, surprisingly enough, the easiest section huh. in the book for me to write. I wrote it very quickly basically in one go. And I changed almost nothing in all of the drafts and editing stages. Whereas Zhu Wen and Leah's section went through many, many, many different (laughs) versions, including points of view. Like Zhu Wen's section used to be in third person. Leah's section used to be in second person. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think part of what made Yongzong's section so easy to write was that I started writing it quite late in the process. Hmm. Um, By that time, I already knew what he'd done. I knew that he was someone who had, not to give away too much, but he was someone who'd done a terrible thing Hmm. and, and yet was invested, very invested, in seeing himself as a good person and telling himself a story in which he in which he's not a villain um, or in which he hasn't done anything wrong so when i started writing his character and his section 
I was asking myself questions like, you know, what kind of person is able to delude himself <laughs> so thoroughly? <laughs> You know, what kind of person is susceptible to falling in love with a mirage of a person, wow. um, a mirage that is actually, you know, of his own making. So Yongzong's relationship with his father and his childhood experiences arose pretty easily and organically from my knowledge of who he would become as an adult. The interpersonal relationships, it kind of boggles the mind that you're able to pull them off with such exacting detail and make them just so alive while also, again, reckoning with these bigger storytelling circumstances that are, I, it's just such a unique and beautiful read. Just thank so, you. and thank you for telling librarians about it. I guess before we, we go, would you like to talk about maybe someone, some authors who've influenced you or someone you're reading right now that you're loving? Sure. For this book in particular, there are many books that were really crucial to my being able to figure out how to write it. I think, you know, we talked a little bit about having an absent protagonist um, as a magnetic center in the book. And the most obvious sort of model for that is The Great Gatsby. And quite early on, I thought about this book as written in the style of Great Gatsby with a narrator who's a peripheral narrator gazing at someone else who's a magnetic center. But other novels that really spoke to me for this aspect of the book were Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels and Zia Haider-Raman's In the Light of What We Know and Magda Spabo's The Door. All of these books have an almost mythological protagonist who never speaks directly to the reader. And I was so drawn to these books and they really taught me how to write my book, the structure that I wanted. For Yongsun's section, um, Chang Rei Lee's A Gesture Life was in the back of my head. Um, books like books like Chang Rei Lee's A Gesture Life and also Kazuo Ishiguro's Remains of the Day, this, you know, male narrator who has an image of himself and and is perhaps skirting away from directly addressing some kind of traumatic memory. And for Leah's voice, which was actually the hardest for me to get down, I think because there just aren't as many books with young women at the center, mm. um, young women narrators, especially who are intelligent and not, you know, trivial. <laughs> um, it took it took a longer time to find an example of that, and of course, Elena Ferrante was one. It was someone who I thought brilliantly captured, you know, the perspective of a child a, of a girl, while also um, capturing her intelligence, mm. and and also Jamaica Kincaid's novellas Annie, John, and Lucy were really important for me. Excellent. With everything going on currently in Hong Kong and the protests, do you feel that strange sense of time folding into itself that you so beautifully articulate in Little Gods? Yes, definitely I do. Though, of course, the current protests in Hong Kong are very different. Uh, mm -hmm. The current protests in Hong Kong are very different from the 1989 protests in Tiananmen Square. China's place in the world has changed. Technology has made a leaderless movement possible. And of course, Hong Kong comes with its own very specific history 
language and sense of local identity. But I think partly because the Chinese Communist Party has never openly reckoned with its actions in 1989, the shadow of June 4th hangs over the Hong Kong protests and and every major protest movement in China that's happened since for both the protesters and for the government. As a writer, however, I'm not as interested in political strategy or protest ideology, but rather, you know, the texture of life as it's lived in these moments when, you know, people have a sense that it's going to make it into the history books. And more than anything, I'm interested in the wild and irreplaceable individuality of every person in the center and in the periphery. And I spoke to this earlier. I'm especially interested in those in the periphery, the people, you know, who are perhaps standing at the edge of the photograph, perhaps just just beyond the edge, even in Hong Kong, you know, for the Hong Kong protest, for example, I wonder what does it feel like to be a parent of a 14-year-old protester or the child of a police officer or a shift worker who's buying lunch and happens to walk through a demonstration or a Filipina domestic worker whose employer is using the protest as an excuse to not give her her one day off of work a week. Those, you know, as a writer, I feel like that's what I try to remember and think about is, is the humanity of every person involved and at the periphery. I'm nodding vigorously. I mean, I, those are all stories that I would like to read. And I guess just maybe will lead me to my last question. What are you working on next? Well, I am currently, you know, trying to write some stories. I have a second novel that I started writing when I was waiting for the edits of this one. But novels, as as I've mentioned, take a bit of investment. So I'm, I'm doing the, I'm trying to get the more instant gratification now with short stories. Oh. Um, my second novel is about a, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I think that's a great lead. <laughs> That's, and and okay. let's let's introduce people to Little Gods first, and they'll be coming back very excited. Yeah. And whatever yeah. it is, I am sure it will be worth the wait. This is really one of the most impressive debuts I've read in a very long time, Mung. So congratulations to you. Thank you so much. And I, I just cannot wait to get this into the hands of more readers and see what they have to say. So everyone, thank you so much for listening. Mung, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. Uh, Little Gods goes on sale January 14th. I hope everyone will check it out. Again, Mung, thank you and all the best to you. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.